had a little pre-show topic that I didn't think was going to make it because mainly because I'm still trying to figure out uh, this whole thing. But it, it seems to be in the last couple of weeks we haven't talked about it on the show, but there has been another resurgence of anti-system D sentiment. Uh, oh, people are <clears throat> everything now. Good uh, luck with that. System D is a monster that's eating Linux. Uh, System D is a division between the young and the old. System D is a division of core fundamental philosophies of the Unix way versus staying competitive in the cloud, blah, blah, blah. Like, it's all of this stuff. And uh, producer Eric here, who's in studio today, hello, linked uh, to an article in the subreddit that was uh, written up um, on uh, Infoworld.com by Paul Valencia. And he says, choose your side on the Linux divide. The battle over System D exposes fundamental gaps between the Unix old guard and the new guard of Linux developers. Is this really Get a here. is this really a young versus old thing, guys? Doesn't feel like it to me. So. Uh, I, I can see where they're coming from. All right, lay it on me. It's, go ahead, Rodney. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I was just gonna say it feels like they're just going no change. Exactly. Yep. Mm, okay. What do you think, Colonel Linux? I, I I I feel the same way. I think that I think that it comes to I think it comes down to. A lot of people that have have uh, have dealt with Linux for years and say, "Listen, we we have this ended system and and it worked and and everything was was there." And if we're going to modify things, um, to to go to this top down approach, all inclusive approach, rather than you know it goes it goes against the fundamental Linux philosophy. And at the same time, there's people like uh, people like me or a couple other people in our generation that that look at it and say, "Well, uh, who cares if it's better? Let's go with that." Yeah, I mean, progress train coming. I just, I feel like so. His here is his fundamental argument. He says fundamentally, I think it exposes a separation of the Linux community between those who were deep into Unix before Linux came onto the scene and those who came later. I can't help but think that a number of the younger developers and admins are missing key elements of how Unix-like systems were designed, how they functioned before, say, 1998, when Unix was for servers and high-end workstations, not for desktop systems or laptops. And you that see, was the you point. kidding me? That was the point that seemed the most questionable to me because system D, like the desktop user, doesn't even care about that. Right, it's it is for servers. It's so much for servers. It's, that's why it's being driven by Red Hat so much. You know, that's one thing that I liked about having an OpenSUSE server at home is that it it, it has system D. System D is great for server management. Right, it, and even totally, you can control your mounts and stuff. I mean, it's awesome. Yeah. I, I I just okay. So here's why what I recognize is we are we are sort of consolidating a lot of functionality, but it seems like a lot of times it's it's functionality that hasn't been maybe that's been left to sort of wane over the years, and so nobody's really picking up the slack in a lot of these cases. Or times have changed, like you know having having the ability to have your like your mount system be aware of when your network connection goes inactive and active. Uh, almost seems like just kind of fundamentally basic functionality that a modern Absolutely. operating system should have. Exactly. Well, exactly. I don't. I don't really understand the, um, the I the argument that um, it's not Unix like or it's against the Unix philosophy because Linux isn't Unix. Exactly. It hasn't yeah. been. If exactly. you want something exactly. more Unix like, use BSD. But Linux isn't Unix anymore. Well, but isn't it? Isn't some of the things that it, where it be, where it is the most Unix are some of the best things about it? I mean, isn't that what's made uh, some of us drawn to it over, say, Windows or Mac OS X? Is that it has? I mean, you Fair know. Enough. But I, does so, that mean that we should ignore when other things uh, surpass Unix? Exactly. Right. Exactly. I mean, and that, I think that's uh, actually probably the best thing about Linux. You know, it's like you know, it's a community driven. You know, blah. Whatever works best is what gets you know adopted. Everything else gets forked or abandoned. You know, and so system D is like the you know natural extension of everything else. 
you know, in the, in the subreddit, I'm looking at uh, tyrosies he put in there. Here I was thinking I chose and built my tools by what they could do for me and not their inherent philosophical values. <laughs> People need to be reminded that the Unix philosophy was grounded in the pragmatic reality of <clears throat> computer systems in the 1970s and emphatically do not deliberately... Cr- Emphatically, not deliberately created as a blind dogma to be repeated and followed without comprehension or context. Absolutely. Yeah, I guess yeah, that's a good point that. too, right? Yeah, is we shouldn't take something that was a design philosophy influenced by the time and then make it a credo, almost a constitution, right? We should that that right, it would right. be inappropriate. <laughs> exactly. It's it's that's it, the way it, it was never meant to be that. What you mean? Yeah, so you, you mean like what Microsoft does? Well, and actually, exactly. I want to underscore that point because I think that's one of the best things that's kept Linux so nimble is. This willingness to re-examine and redo fundamental parts of the OS that a lot of times there's not an immediate commercial incentive to do so. You know, it's not going to make a great bullet point on the side of Red Hat's uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux box, but that still that's gets done. Point. And I think that's fundamentally we can we don't want to move away from that willingness to move forward like that because we don't want to stagnate like the commercial operating systems have. Yeah, we don't but, want to end up with HFS Plus as our file system, right? Exactly. <laughs> or actually, but <laughs> But who who are we to question our Unix forefathers and <laughs> try to change their constitution? Wow! Oh, wow! We're, we're <laughs> troll mode. <laughs> wow! Okay. Well, you know, but all joking aside, though, there is a difference in architecting a society versus uh, architecting a technology solution because a technology a society is fundamentally based on human behaviors and in human nature. But a technology solution is fundamentally based on something that's always evolving, something that's capabilities and requirements, needs, demands are always changing. From I mean, just over five years, technology changes so much. So it's it's not really – I think that's probably the biggest thing to pull from this discussion is this, it really isn't fair to limit today's systems by a philosophy that was designed like, – like you wouldn't, you wouldn't produce a TV series by the same restrictions that a TV series had in the 1960s. Oh, no. Right. But, but, but this, the thing is that like the, the best aspects of Linux survive. The best – the worst aspects of it go away. And so, the, so in, in part of that, the core philosophies that have, have brought us to this point in history, you know, either survive or, or go away. But, you know, I, ideally they survive. You know, I mean it shouldn't be like some sort of preservation. It shouldn't be a museum. Right. So, um, so you, you, we, we're talking about like one of the great things about Linux, right, is that, oh, that we have um, – the capability or the, I don't know what the word is, but to, you know, uh, completely rip out what we have and put in something new, which is true, which can be a good thing, but we also tend to go too far with that. Like, look at GNOME 3 when it first started. It was awful. I love, I mean, I'm a GNOME user now. I love it. But GNOME 3, when it first started, was awful because we rip out a paradigm and start with a new. Right, or how I imagined Wayland is going to be. Right, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. And we're well, going to be reeling these words when we're all switching over to Wayland. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Now looking for Yeah. And well, and, well, yeah. <laughs> but then three <laughs> years too. later, after we, switch, after we make the switch, trust me, it'll all work fine. Right. And it'll be, it'll be like, oh, yeah, we had to. We, we had to. That's, think, exactly. It was yeah. the most logical thing to do. It was right. the only way forward. Yeah. No brakes on the progress train. <laughs> yeah. <And> people's, <laughs> people seem a lot more cautious these days than they did when I first started using Linux, like, five six years ago yeah maybe that's that's a sign people are using it for more serious things Mm -hmm. yeah yeah this is one of those things where it seems like 
it's a uh, almost a liberal liberal versus conservative argument. Well, and it also feels a little bit of growing up. Like yeah. the the Linux growing that exactly the Linux that we played with uh, years ago isn't the same. now Linux is an adult yeah. and it's 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 not the same Linux anymore. It's not a toy anymore. Yeah, right. it's used in production and we need it for our tool chain and we need it to yeah, yeah. blah blah blah. It's not it's not the fledgling cetera, cetera. little uh, remember hey, you guys remember that the number one phrase that used to be appended before the word Linux in any article was the grassroots project, the yes. grassroots initiative Linux. Oh my Gosh, God, remember yes. grassroots, how much we used to hear grassroots? Well, now Linux is the number one operating system on the planet, right? Yep. So exactly. it's not grassroots. Also, if it's being it's used for that, garden. if it's being used for that, you know, art, fundamental architecture, then continuously ripping out things isn't good because no, I, I would have a hard time not being a Linux user, looking at Linux and seeing that, you know, you rip, you, you rip out everything and bring in pulse audio and then you have audio issues mm-hmm. and then you rip out the display server and now we're gonna have display issues well and i would have a hard time switching to linux were i not you know that's why why the fork is simultaneously one of the most disruptive things in open source and simultaneously one of the best things in open source Absolutely. because you can have a company fork something and they can have an lts release for a while that that rides that out right that just sort of waits it out and then switches over or you can have a company that's de- de- delivering a product on a phone or on a router that can maintain their own fork internally and continue to you know churn out whatever exactly. it is they have to bang on for a while and then until things stabilize again so it does mean a little bit of in-house investment but it's way better than having to invent the entire operating system from the ground up or to have to recreate your entire tool chain when windows decides to go to windows 8 or whatever and destroys everything else that you know, <laughs> you had, you know previously you know what i'm saying i mean come on and, and, and that's where community comes into to linux that's why community is such a you know awesome thing and hence, we finally have a Mate version of Ubuntu. <laughs> Thank you very much. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that's powered by delicious smoky cheddar. My name is Chris. And my name is Matt. Hey there, Matt. we got a fun show today, a lot coming up. And to make it a little extra special, producer Eric is in the studio with us right now. Hey there, Eric. Hey, Chris. How you doing? I'm good. Glad to have you here today. Oh, yeah, thanks. Thanks Glad for eating there. my meat before the show, yeah. too. You know, that was yeah. good meat. Yeah. The smoky cheddar, I'm going to, I'll be honest right up front, it was really thick. And it didn't melt all the way. Yeah. Uh, so we had softened smoky cheddar. Yeah. It but, was It was still good, but it, it, yeah. it was just a little thick to bite into. Some of it had to come off, unfortunately. So you know what sure. I did? I, I'm not one to take uh, just a big block of cheddar on my, I mean, I like but I got to be careful, right? And yeah. if I'm going to go for it, it's got to be right because it's got to right. be worth the pain. Yep. So uh, I took a whole row of sliced hot onion right off the barbecue, 550 oh. degree onion. Oh, yeah. Put it down on top of the cheese, and oh, that and that, that onion melted into the cheese, Matt. Why am I talking about this? Melted all the oh, way through. Man. Well, I guess I'm still. I guess so, I'm still a little so, hungry. Are you going to like Skype message me a burger, or how's this going? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean. Sorry, Matt. I know I, I shouldn't Just talk one. about it unless I brought one for the whole class. Although he, the man does provide bacon of a morning when I come. That's into true. The show, so yeah, sure. yeah. So I'm okay. I'm okay. Uh, all right. Well, uh, hey, chat room. Please don't forget to bang suggest as we go along on today's show. We got a lot to cover, including some more exclusive interviews from LinuxCon 2014. Noah is also here to give us his impression from the floor and tell us a little bit of behind the scenes from the trip. There's an article that uh, also came out that uh, wants us all to just shut up about Linux on the desktop. Just shut up. Stop talking about it. And uh, I think we're going to have to talk about it a little bit. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And uh, as well, we also are going to do – it is something new we're doing at least once a month for a little while. We're going to take a little look back at Linux – 
from years ago. And it's our last chance to do it for the month of August, so we'll take a retrospective look back at Linux from five and ten years ago. Some interesting stuff in there for you guys. But first, I want to start with our feedback, as is something we like to do on the Unplugged show. And a Texas Linux user wrote in. You guys might remember Texas Linux user. He wrote in a couple of weeks ago about switching from a Linux box to a Mac. He says, hello, Chris, Matt, RC, and of course the Mumble Room. Well, I didn't realize that my email would cause such a stir even across multiple shows. First, let me say I just haven't switched to the Mac yet, but I still plan on doing so. With that said, let me express some thoughts after hearing your discussion going on across the shows. In both Coda Radio and Linux Unplugged, Chris mentioned I should try out Elementary OS. He says, I'm actually already an Elementary OS user. Uh, he's been running on a Dell. The reason, I want, the reason I use EOS, don't call it that, was because it solved a big problem that I had, finding a decent desktop that just let me get my work done. I can't begin to describe how frustrating using any other desktop environment has been. Elementary OS solved this by a long shot. No other desktop has even been close for me. So, let me give the listeners a chance for their head to stop spinning. But I mean it. No other Linux desktop is even close. All right. The past several weeks across JB shows, you and Matt have been, disc- have been kind of griping about how most of the Linux desktops are kind of missing that special thing that would propel them into the mainstream. It seemed as, as if there was no desktop that was just right. And I'm here to say that's absolutely true. There is no desktop that fulfills the dream of Linux desktop uh, because the Linux dream is just that. It's just a dream. A dream that every Linux user has... But a thing we forget to or we ignore is that no one dream, no one dream, no one has the same dream. We all dream different, different things and want different things. We as a community have fooled ourselves into thinking we could bring together this group dream to a life we can't. Why is Elementary OS Project doing such a good job of building a decent distro? Simple. They skipped the whole dream the Linux desktop ideal and focused on core improvement design ideals like the human interface guidelines that they have. The other reason why elementary OS folks stick out so much better is because they aren't making design choices out of the blue. They have a guideline. They stick to it. And they have a technological underpinning of an OS that can stick to those guidelines. Before EOS came along, I was distro hopping like crazy because I was chasing that dream of the Linux desktop. After a week of using EOS, I realized what an idiot I was for all of that. In the end, I'll be switching to the Mac, but I won't cease to be a Linux user. I do have another machine that will run Linux, but switching solves two very big problems that plague Linux. A desktop that doesn't get in your way and lets you work, and good hardware that just works out of the box. Thanks for the great show. As of yet, still a Texas Linux user. He had me till the last two things, and then he just literally, factually gave a single user experience <laughs> versus a collective user experience. Right, true. It's, it's, it's just like... Um, Actually, <laughs> no, but okay. You know, that, yeah, I, so okay. a couple of things I take issue with. Uh, so one thing yeah. that I think is kind of a common thing that a lot of Linux users repeat is there's no desktop gets it just right. Uh, I have to keep switching right. around because I'm never happy. And what I, I used to feel that way too, and then I realized that almost the option of having choice makes you constantly want to jump around just a little bit. And yes. when you just settle down and just stick to a desktop and just learn to work with it, because this is what elementary OS and Mac OS present the user. You have no choice but to use this desktop. So, therefore, your choice is, I will then learn how to modify this desktop in just the slight ways that I need. Uh, granted, I'm not, I'm not dismissing it whole cloth. They have to start somewhere really reasonable that's really well done. And then they move, then as the user, you then just move that to the, to the position you need it to be in. And you just... That's the only choice you have, so therefore you make it work. You learn one desktop. There's not a lot of options. You're not constantly considering the grass on the other side of that fence. It's not that kind of scenario. You just double down. If I pretended like there was no other desktop environment in the world for Linux except for GNOME, if we all did that, like if just one day we all woke up and there was no other desktop except for GNOME, we would all just figure out how to make it work. For the mo- a lot of Definitely. people would leave, but I think a lot of people would just stop their hopping around or KD or whatever. What do you think, Eric? Well, well I, I'm thinking I, 
I see different desktops as different tools. You know, you have your GNOME desktop, which I spend most of my time in, especially if I'm leisurely using my computer. But if I need to do anything developmentally or if I need to, say, mass lo- upload a whole bunch of pictures that I have in a folder to Facebook or Twitter or wherever, then I'm going to grab and get into KDE because hmm. So you, you switch is based on the things. workload of the day. That's correct. One's like your work desktop, one's your play desktop. Yeah, exactly. Huh. And, and depending on the situation, heck, I'll even use Windows if it warrants a need. So do you feel like you have the sensation that no one desktop is quite doing it for you? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Because yeah. The different desktops have different focuses and different tool sets. Well, okay. but Or is it that you have learned workflows in those other desktops? And so to you, it feels that way. But if you learned the workflow under GNOME, for example, like I'll give you an example. Like this is just a small example. But under KDE, you can modify the KDE screenshot application to upload right to Imager. Right. Uh, under GNOME, not so much. No. There's ways to do it, so I switched to Shutter. Right. On the Mac, it would be the same exact thing. They're never going to build in Imager upload directly into Mac OS X. Correct. So yes. on the Mac, I get a screenshot tool that just uploads to Imager. Yeah. Therefore, my my work my workflow works on either desktop. One requires a little more work. Right. But at the end of the day, I can accomplish the same task on either one. But on so let's sticking with the Mac, I would have no option but to go the Imager app route. And so I wouldn't see that as a, oh, well, GNOME can't do something that KDE can. I see that as a, well, that's not built in, so I just got to go find something that does it. It, it, I guess what I'm saying is, to me, it seems like not having a choice of desktop forces you to rethink the way you look at a problem. And it's it's not that the Mac interface is some amazing development of of design and and user interface it's that it's good enough it does essentially what it needs to do and you really have no other choice yeah and then you just add options and tools on top of that to make it do what you need it to do yeah and i could say you could do that with just about any linux desktop environment i mean yes granted i do use gnome most of the time but you know like like i said i will jump in kde if i need you know dolphin to do its thing or Mm -hmm. what what Mm -hmm. have you Mm -hmm. uh let us know how it goes texas linux user Next email comes in from XY, and this is maybe one we could get the, uh, the Mumble Room's uh, thoughts on. He says, Dear Chris and Matt, I'm a Windows user that switched to Arch Linux. It took me, now I love this, as a Windows user, here's, here's what I, it took me two days to set up a proper install with encryption and LVM. I installed a minimal version of GNOME 312 and all seemed great. But then I discovered GNOME's geolocation package, GeoClue, and it's not removable because it's integrated into GNOME. This makes me so mad. Do you trust the disable option in this? So I thought, who better to ask than our gurus, Chris and Matt, and I'm going to also throw the mumble room in on this. How can I remove the geolocation feature from GNOME? Thanks in advance, Mike. Hmm. Well, I would, if it was me, oh, I would just try XFCE. I would, well, I would, <laughs> I would, I would I flip this around like, why did it not bother you in Windows? Like, you know, like, because yeah, Windows yeah, has yeah, the same yeah, thing. Well, you had to say tagging and all the other stuff going on. That was fine, but, you know, oh, no, no. So um, I, I'm sure this is there for, like, time zone functionality and things like that, That's right? pretty much it. I mean, I'm looking at the, the option right now. Right now I have location disabled. Yeah. I do trust that, <laughs> yeah, and, and here's too. why, because that code is open, and if that code didn't do what it's supposed to do, eventually somebody would say that and go, hey, minute, this is not disabling anything, Yeah, and it, it'd be a big controversy. Oh, yeah, useless button, yeah. red flag. You know? uh, so or, that, by default, I kind of have a little more trust, but I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah, I, think, I, I think we should just suggest that he go and audit the code if he's really that concerned about For it. For real. It's an option. Or have somebody he trusts audit or the hire code that somebody. can. Yeah, yeah. Hire. I wouldn't, I mean, uh, to me... It, it, what, it, think about like the motiva- what would be the motivation 
to put a button in an open source UI that controls open source software on an open platform where anybody has access to the code. Exactly. There, there is no. What would be the motivation to make a button that doesn't do what it says to do in that scenario? Because it's not like it takes some some decompiling and some super secret like hacker investigations to to sniff packet captures and compare it with time and date stamps and geolocation. No, it doesn't take any of that. It just takes somebody to look at the code and go, yeah, this is bullshit. Yeah. So exactly. there's a middle ground, though, because remember when Canonical had the little turn off online search results, it was yeah, doing what it, it was doing what it said it was going to do. It was telling applications that you shouldn't present, you shouldn't render those search results online. But if I remember right, it was an, it was a, it was a flag that the applications had to choose right. to obey. That's mm-hmm. true. That's very true. That's very true. I don't know. I I think. That's a little different because it wasn't a central location lookup service. But I don't know. Right. Yeah, but that's a great point. It's worth being skeptical. I'm not making fun of them for being skeptical. By the way, one thing that uh, – one program I know that uses GeoClue in the background is Redshift because then it determines you, where you yep. are mm-hmm. on the planet and sets your screen temperature accordingly depending on if it's nighttime or daytime. Yep. It definitely – that's definitely one of them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's, there's a few uh, There's a few in there. And I I use it too. Okay. I, don't, I don't even bother disabling it because – this is why I use an open source operating system to begin with this so I can have some some level of comfort in these features. I think it is good to be vigilant, but right. Yeah. Right, absolutely. Speaking of being vigilant, you know what else you should be vigilant of? Your mind. Go over to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged and go educate yourself a little bit. You want to get into development? You want to learn how to program? You want to know a little more about AWS or just the basics of Linux just to cover in those gaps for maybe when you self-taught yourself? You'd be surprised how effective it is when you go over and just use a little bit of training to fill in some things that perhaps you didn't pick up along the way. Even somebody like myself who's been using Linux since the 90s, I've taken a couple of these courses and been really thankful that I did. I've discovered there's been little things that I could have been doing to make my life easier. So go check out linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. Take advantage of the summer of learning savings. It's just going on for a little bit longer. And Linux Academy is awesome. They have step-by-step video courses, comprehensive downloadable study guides, seven-plus Linux distributions you get to choose from, and then they'll automatically adjust the courseware to match that Linux distribution, which is awesome. And for me, because I have a horrible memory, I love that they have all of my progress. Everything's right there in a dashboard. When I log in, I can check right where I was, pick up. I could go back a little bit. I could self-test. And they really break down individually how, how long each little part's going to take. So for me, who's somebody a little bit OCD about, well, if I'm going to sit down and do this, I want to make sure I have enough time. And I love that I say, okay, you know what? I can get 25 minutes in tonight and then i walk away really feeling like i've accomplished something and intellectually stimulated myself linuxacademy.com slash unplug this is a great opportunity to get your skill sets up on aws they have end-to-end scenario training where you'll actually walk away having deployed something in a very production-like environment because they're spinning up aws instances on the background they're using s3 they're using ec2 they're having you deploy an application in those scenarios if you need to learn OpenStack, they've got a lot of comprehensive guides on OpenStack, more content all the time including live stream events where you can ask the educators questions about OpenStack, and then to top it all off, they have a community that's packed full of people trying to learn and people who are experts, and they can give you that little nudge when you need a little more. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged to get the summer of learning discount. Go check them out. Go look at all the new OpenStack stuff. Go look at all the new AWS stuff, and go look at all of the awesome Linux courses they have. If you're ready to get your certifications, LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged, and a huge thank you to Linux Academy for sponsoring Linux Unplugged program. Good stuff. Great, great, great service for you guys. I'm so happy to have them as sponsors. So go check them out, even just to learn a little more, to thank them as a way to just say thanks for sponsoring the show. Go to Linux, uh, go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. 
All right, we got two more emails to get to before we get to our LinuxCon interviews. And our next one comes in from Alec. And he's following up on a topic from a while back. He says, hey, Chris, Matt, Chatroom, Mumble Room, a couple of months ago, you were discussing the usage of open source in schools and had received a lot of feedback saying that a lot of the IT curriculum is not well designed and does not really incorporate Linux and free software. I have found that not to be the case. I'm 13 and I run Gentoo on my custom-built rig and Ubuntu on my DigitalOcean VPS. I have found that the IT teachers in my school have been knowledgeable about Linux and have encouraged its general use. I find there's a lot of enthusiasm for Linux in younger computer users as well. Thanks for all the great shows. Alec. I'd like to know where this kid lives. That's some great news, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I think, I think venue plays a lot in it. I think it depends on where you live. On certain communities, I certainly think that's the truth, especially in places like Canada. I know they're really big in Linux there. But here in the Northwest, I think it's kind of hit and miss. Yeah, I mean, we do have that Microsoft backyard culture. That could be influencing yeah. our perspective on it. You know, I was very lucky that um, when I was... Uh, in high school, Linux was very early, and my teacher had heard of it, and uh, he was cool with giving it a shot. Yeah, in my um, high, in, in my school, it was just uh, let's see, some students, a group of students, got together and said, "Hey, let's give this a shot." And then the school faculty, who had a contract with Microsoft, said, "Ah, no." Mm, really? Yeah, I had a similar. Yeah. Thing. As a Canadian, yeah. as a Canadian, I can say that when I went through high school, everything was Microsoft. Yeah, and I've talked to. <laughs> members of the uh, local uh, users group here, sure, and sure. They've, set, they've talked about the same kind of problems with getting Linux into schools that you've mentioned on the show. So I think it might depend on the province to some extent. I'm sure yeah. it could depend on the district and their, you know, their yeah, culture, their it. deals. Oh, yeah. I mean... I, mean, certainly. I can at least speak to my own school district. Okay. Um, we, this year, we all got Chromebooks, which, uh, the, I mean, the first thing I did when I got it was <laughs> install Ubuntu in a CH root and... <laughs> You know, and then I've been charging uh, my friends fifteen dollars to do it on theirs. Good uh, man, nice. I like this guy. I like it. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> right the on. funny thing about it, the funny thing about it is, um, they've had this, some awful, these awful issues with their uh, web proxy that they send all our traffic through. Oh. And so, like in the middle of class, like people will be working on their Google Docs or whatever, and it'll just you know disconnect. And so, um, I, I, I was in my, uh, AP biology class with this other kid that I'd installed Linux on. And so all of a sudden everyone starts raising their hands and like their stuff isn't working and like they can't connect to anything. And <laughs> only the two of us, it is only the two of us that have a working oh, wow. internet connection. Love it. Nice. I, nice. I, it, was, it was pretty great. <laughs> that's a nice win. Uh, I like how he thinks too. <laughs> yeah, that is, that's very clever. Are you using Crouton? What are you doing to install uh, Ubuntu on there? Within the Crouton. Tr- yeah, nice. Oh, nice. that's clever, dude. Good for you. And it may, and you know what? It's a win for the kids, too. 15 bucks, and they, now they've just get, turned that computer into a computer. Yep, into and, a they can get, computer. and mostly they, they mostly want it so they can, because um, if you do that, it doesn't go through the, their web proxy anymore, so you can get to Netflix and get to all that kind of stuff. Nice. That is, that is really Ingenious. great. Ingenious. That's great yeah. to hear. And you know what? That makes me, because that, that makes me happy that Chromebooks are doing so well in schools because it means every kid that gets a Chromebook potentially has that option. That's right. And it just takes a little initiative to do it. Or a friend that will charge you 15 bucks. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, you know, that, that's not entirely out of the realm. I mean, no. look at what look at what uh, Linux supporters do every day. Yeah. It's just you know, people who yeah. support Linux in the background. No, dude's on his yeah. way to a contracting that's gig. Right. He's going to be an IT consultant. That's right. Soon. Exactly. Uh, okay. Well, there are the students that, that say, I can't believe you're charging 15 bucks to type stuff in a, into a computer. 
Like, do you know how to type that stuff? That's right. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like, there's people that make millions of dollars a year. Typing Say, things welcome to the year. knowledge economy, sucker. You know, at this conference <laughs> I was at in Coeur d'Alene a couple of weeks ago, I was telling somebody about Linux, and yeah. they're like, "Well, if it's free, what do you have to pay for?" I'm like, "The knowledge of the person. Think about it like a doctor. Yeah, you have to go to the doctor. You pay them for their, their knowledge. Yeah, not I can cut you for free, but knowing how to cut you is what's That's important. Right. That's yeah. right. That's right. Great analogy. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we have uh, one more email. It comes in from friend of the show, Steve-O. He writes in from time to time. And he says, hi, Chris. I came across this, and it looks like something that's right up your alley. It's a Kickstarter project. Now, you guys know. I don't, I, if, we, if we talk about Kickstarter projects all the time, I could have, we could have a whole show about Kickstarters every week. But from time to time, there's a game that comes out on Kickstarter that uh, scratches my funny bone in my special place that makes me I, – I even decided to back the game because they already out of the box have got Linux support. And it is a old-school uh, platformer-looking game, 8-bit-style goodness – uh, they have 993 backers. They're trying to get to $50,000. They're at $28,000 right now with 10 days to go. This game looks like a cross between Mario, Metroid. Um, uh, I'm, trying, I'm blanking on some other games. but The first thing I thought of was Metroid, just straight off the bat. Yeah, and they've got like some great uh, some great videos and uh, some great uh, GIFs. And it looks like a ton of work's already been done on the game. And it already has a working Linux port, too. So, uh, yeah, that I, with that, I decided, you know, if it already has a working Linux port, I'm going to go ahead and back it. So I backed it for 15 bucks, and you get you get access to the game. They're going to release it on Linux, uh, Mac, PC, or I guess Windows, and the Wii U, they say. Via Steam, so, apparently. Yeah, via Steam. So I, I'm just going to put a link in the show notes if you guys want to check it out. Steve-O, I recommend it. He's got good taste, and uh, I, I watched the video, and I decided to back it. And I, for me, my Kickstarter rule for games is... Uh, I don't do games that either if they have stretch goal for Linux, I don't back them until they've reached it, or I don't yeah. back them unless they upfront say Linux support. Yeah, I don't let them tease me with Linux support because they don't. You know, you never know if you're going to get it. So yeah. in this game, they're saying right out of the gate they're doing Linux. It looks like a cool project too. So it's uh, the game. By the way, is called Hive Jump. If you want to look for it directly on the Kickstarter, we have a link in nice. the show notes. Thanks, Steve-O, for sending that in. If you guys see something that's really awesome in the Linux dimension. On Kickstarter, uh, you can always email it in. Go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click the contact link, and choose Linux Unplugged from the drop-down or Linux Action Show. If I'll leave that to you. It's just based on your timing, your sense of timing. Uh, earlier in the week, probably should go to Unplugged. Later in the week, Linux Action Show. Uh, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to put that on you. I'm not going to put that on you. guys can decide. You guys can decide. Flip a coin. All right, so let's shift gears to LinuxCon 2014. Uh, in fact, before we do that, I'll stop and I'll thank Ting. Everybody right now, hey, do me a favor. Do me a solid. Go to linux.ting.com right now. Linux.ting.com. Everybody do it. Linux.ting.com. And uh, here's why. When you go to linux.ting.com, that's going to get you a $25 credit for your first month of Ting or more if you bring your own Ting device. If you don't have a Ting device, they're going to take $25 off your first phone. Real talk, everybody. You got suckered into buying contracts and phones that are really not good for you. They're not good for you financially. They're not good for the soul. Ting is mobile that makes sense. No contract. No early termination fee. And you only pay for what you use. It starts at a flat $6 per month. Then they just take your minutes, your messages, and your megabytes. They add them all up. And that's just what you pay, plus any taxes that might be applicable. Linux.ting.com. Try out their savings calculator. Ting has such an awesome setup here. And if you think about, like, if we could go back in time, like if we all had DeLoreans, get them up to 88 miles per hour, we got those awesome Doc Brown sunglasses that he 
totally couldn't see anything out of. And you got your old man makeup on because you're going back in time, right? I mean, let's real talk, everybody, right? Real talk. No BS. You're going back in time to restructure the mobile industry. Let's not kid ourselves. You'd do it just like Ting's doing it, right? You'd have no hold customer service. one eight five five ting ftw Anytime between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. A real Canadian answers the phone. That Canadian isn't just polite. They're actually empowered to solve your problems. They're actually Android fans. Oh, and did you know you can go get the Nexus 5 directly from Ting's website? Boom. You own that Nexus 5. It's no contract. Straight out. It's your phone. Just like when you go buy a laptop, you own that laptop. And if you just want to use Ting for the data, you can. Personally, I'm almost all Wi-Fi calling these days, and it's amazing. I've currently got three active phones on my Ting account, and I am paying less than all you fools in the other contracts out there. Paying less than all you guys. Linux.ting.com. How's your Nexus 5? My Nexus 5 is great. Yeah, you just got that cool gamepad controller, yes, too. Yes, I did. The Moga gamepad, the pocket one. It just fits right Ooh. in the palm of my hand. Yeah, I can buddy. can take it anywhere. It's all, it's, Score. Yeah, it's really neat. The HTC phones, the Nexus 5, some amazing phones. Ting's got them. The iPhones are great. Ting's got them. They also have just dedicated hotspot and tethering if you just want to have some mobile data. It's a $6 hotspot, you guys. You buy it once. You go to linux.ting.com. They're going to take $25 off. And then you have a hotspot you can put in your bag. Put it in your purse. Put it in your purse. Put it in your drawer. It's a $6 hotspot. You need data. You turn it on. You've got data. Come on, it makes so much sense. Linux.ting.com. Try out the savings calculator. Just put in your actual usage, not the gimmick you're paying into that you may or may not be using all of. Put your actual usage into that savings calculator and then sit back and go, I could buy a laptop every couple of years with that savings. Linux.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring Linux Unplugged. Okay, so uh, let's get in the mumble room, and uh, we'll start. Uh, so, uh, Noah, if you're in here with us, I'm going to play a couple of these interviews, and then after they wrap up, if you have any extra things you want to add to them or anything like that, you'll have the floor. I thought we should probably start with the one that seemed to interest you the most. You seem to really enjoy your chat with uh, Matt from Cumulus Networks about their Linux software uh, networking infrastructure. So I teased part one in Linux Action Show on Sunday. Let's start with part two, where you could see like Noah's starting to get really interesting. He's like, okay, wait a minute here. If I was going to implement this, how would that look? And so that's where this discussion starts out. If you didn't catch our coverage on Linux Action Show on Sunday, Cumulus Networks is working on replacing extremely high-end like Cisco-type networking equipment with Linux-powered infrastructure. So when you need to manage an interface on a switch, for example, you use ifconfig. It's amazing, it's crazy, and it's here today. Okay, now, what, one of the things that I would be looking at from a system administration standpoint is how difficult is it to move from one infrastructure to the other? So, for example, what routing protocols are supported? I mean, if I'm coming from, if I'm coming from, uh, from, from a Cisco environment, for example, um, I'm sure there's going to be some routing pro- protocols that just aren't uh, are open standards, and so that they're not going to be able to be used with uh, Cumulus Linux. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, so we ship with Quagga, which is a well-known open-source routing suite, mm-hmm. and that includes very stable support for both BGP and OS, uh, sorry, OSPF. Mm-hmm. And so that's both, again, for IPv4 and IPv6. Sure. Now, our focus today is mostly in the data center, and that's on a Layer 3 class design. Mm-hmm. Essentially, what that means is you have leaf and spine. It's a very horizontally scalable infrastructure. Mm-hmm. It's typically what the kind of the big boys do. If you look at, like, a Facebook or an Amazon, they're pretty much all geared to that infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Now, they may run kind of a virtual network on top, of that just as they may use virtualization for their compute, mm-hmm. but the underpinnings are tr- traditionally a large, scalable layer three. So those are our two main routing protocols. Um, 
We also have a number of protocols supported for Layer 2. So obviously at the very basic would be something like LLDP, which mm-hmm. is similar to CDP, a way of discovering ports uh, on the network, mm-hmm. uh, up to things like um, uh, MLAG-like functionality. So you can have two switches act as one mm-hmm. to a particular downstream host. Um, so we're continuing to add features both in the Layer 2 and Layer 3 space, but we're predominantly on the Layer 3 side, and BGP and OSPF are our most well-tested protocols, and that's what pretty much 99% of our customers use. Perfect. And if I, what what would you consider the ideal you know, green environment for, I, wanna, I want to use Cumulus Network, how do I implement that? What would be your ideal customer? What do you think the best fit for somebody that's maybe looking for your product? Well, today we focus mostly on Broadcom-based uh, products. And so Broadcom has a huge majority of the market. So when you look at a lot of data centers, uh, switches, these are 10 gig, 40 gig, even one gig switches, uh, again, from, from a Dell or Cisco or a Juniper, they have the, the lion's share of the market. And so we focus mostly on, on the 10 gig and 40 gig spot mm-hmm. at this time. So for smaller businesses, you know, we don't have, I would say, kind of a cheap or affordable one gig switch. We have a few that we make available, uh, but we're continuing to improve upon that. Um, so I would say if you're doing 10 gig and 40 gig traffic, mm-hmm. it's, it's a great fit there from a traffic perspective and certainly on the economic side. All of our pricing is transparent. It's on our website. It's very clear uh, what the pricing model is. It's very similar to Red Hat. Uh, it's basically a, a license that you have to utilize the software for a year or three years and in different support levels. Uh, we don't have any time bomb in the product, so it's not as if you, after a year, it just stops routing your packets. Yeah. We don't do anything like that. We try not to be evil. But I'd say really the third most important thing in, in that list is really just the philosophy. So if your organization has already switched to using some automation software and has strong Linux knowledge, particularly on the networking side, or that team is uh, kind of hip to that environment, works out really well. And we see this a lot with customers where virtualization was seen as kind of a scare, where, well, when we deploy virtualization, we're going to lose all these help desk folks. Right. But really, it just grew capacity right. for that part of the organization. And this is the same thing. So, you know, a lot of times networking teams have struggled because they have to use something like Tickle or XSLT or some sort of proprietary programming language right. that's just not well adopted or just never got mainstream traction. What's great about Cumulus Linux is that that knowledge that you already have in-house can be immediately applied. So if you've written everything in Go or Corn Shell or Puppet or Ansible or whatever the case may be, that can now immediately apply to your network. So if your networking team is very much Linux savvy, it's a great fit. And speaking of actual in-production environments, you find a lot, every large organization, they have a ton of system administrators. They don't necessarily have a lot of network engineers. So how does Cumulus Linux cater to that evolving market dynamic? Well, that's a great question. So on the on the sysadmin side, we've tried to be very open about the software that we support. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just announced a, a customer that developed actually Chef Cookbooks. Mm-hmm. The customer's name is Uyala, and they actually published on their GitHub account um, cookbooks that support both Quagga generation and the Etcetera Network Interfaces file, which is the, the Debian-style file for configuring uh, both physical and logical interfaces. Mm-hmm. And so that was a customer-driven adoption error of a particular tool. Uh, Cumulus itself, we've actually done development for both Puppet and Ansible for modules there that you can utilize. So we try to adopt the tools that system administrators are already using as much as we can. And when uh, when you do have to make changes to a code base or when you do have to, to, to get an update, is that something that <clears throat> stays in Cumulus or is that something that gets pushed back upstream? 
Yeah, so I would say about 99% of the software that we um, maintain or modify or change, uh, we push upstream. Mm-hmm. So we have a website called oss.cumulusnetworks.com, and that lists all of our patches or all of our diffs. Since we're based off of Debian, all of our diffs are against a Debian-based package. So it's kind of two levels of diffs, if you will, from the original upstream code. There's the Debian-style package, whatever it's changed, and then our diff against that. Um, so anything like Quagga, LDP, libraries, the kernel, Netlink, we've pushed that all upstream. Mm-hmm. The only component that's proprietary at this time is something called SwitchD, mm-hmm. which is both kind of a driver and a user land process that replicates any of the Netlink events into hardware. So again, if you were to add a route with, say, IP space route mm-hmm. or with Quagga or your own routing protocol, it intercepts those events and pushes it down into the hardware. So again, you get a performance of a traditional switch. It also does other events like, say, firewall rules, for example. So if you write rules and IP tables syntax, we will parse those, make sure they're valid, and then push them in the hardware. So SwitchD is something that, unfortunately, is not open at this time sure. because the code it's compiled against is not GPL. Okay. Well, the fa- I mean, the bottom line is, I mean, that's one package out of, you know, the entire project. The fact that you, I mean, I would consider you guys to be a very, very good community member, and I think that's, that's really fantastic. And like I said, um, one of the companies that is actually using Linux and contributing to the community and believes that Linux can succeed in your respective space, and I think that's really fantastic. Now, if somebody wanted to play, maybe they don't. Maybe they're not in an enterprise; they're just a home user, and they just they just because it's such an interesting project, they wanted to play with it. Is there a way to obtain Cumulus uh, uh, Linux and try it and see how it works? Yeah. So today, we don't currently offer a VM that's available for customers. The main difference there is that the VM is not going to represent exactly what you'd get on hardware. Certainly, the performance would be night and day difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, other things that are different, so for example, on a VM, you may not get certain telemetry or environmental data mm-hmm. like, say, SMBIOS fields, like a serial number, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So we are working on packaging a VM for the end of the year that will be available for folks to trial. But today we have something called the Cumulus Workbench, which basically allows prospective customers to register time on an actual real environment. So we have a number of switches in a data center that have a console server, a PDU, uh, and a management host. Mm-hmm. And so that allows customers to experiment with a number of different software suites. So we have Ansible and CF Engine and Puppet mm-hmm. all available there. And you can literally, literally run an app get command and say, okay, I want to build a two-leaf uh, um, spine uh, architecture um, with two-leaf nodes and two spines, and they're already physically cabled up. And it'll actually blast out all the configs for that and walk you through all the steps. Um, so the Cumulus Workbench is available to anyone. Um, you just have to schedule time. Again, we have roughly around 40 or so switches in a data center that's made available for that. Um, we feel that more representative of kind of the real world environment. Yeah, that's fantastic. What's the cost involved with doing that? So the Cumulus Workbench right now is, is free. We don't do any charge for that. Uh, but typically, you always have to fill out a form and talk right. about what your use case is and what you're planning to do. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Now, how about you said that the pricing structure is very open. Can I ask what a copy of Cumulus Linux costs? Sure. So it depends on two factors. Basically, what is the dominant line share of the ports? So is it a mostly one gig switch, meaning it's got probably 40 ports of one gig and a mm-hmm. couple ports of 10 gig? Or is it a 10 gig switch? Or is it a 40 gig switch? So the um, physical infrastructure dictates the pricing. Mm-hmm. Um, also, there is either a standard business support 
or um, you know more uh, rapid support in terms mm-hmm. of like a 24/7 coverage. Mm-hmm. Um, roughly, it's around $1,500 when you're looking for a 10 gig switch. Mm-hmm. Um, again, it depends on the support levels and all the pricings on the website. Right. I think the difference with us is that you're basically getting a full operating system with support, by the way, right. um, for the cost of traditionally a support contract. Right. Um, and so that's really powerful. And all of our support engineers today are based out of Raleigh, and so we have a good pool of both uh, ex Red Hat folks, ex Cisco yeah, folks, sure. and other vendors. Um, so the, the amount of knowledge there is, is pretty high. So it's very common for us to respond back to a customer very promptly and say, here's a Python script, or here's a one-liner, or here's a patch mm-hmm. to solve your problem, versus we have to wait to get a new build out to them. That's fantastic. And that, that's really great to have that one-on-one direct connect right to the people that can actually provide you the help that you need. How much, if you know off the top of your head, does the, would it cost to get a... a um, one of the uh, the actual switching hardware. Well, again, that's really dependent on how you're acquiring hardware. So if you're going to something like a CDW or Android Micro versus a Dell versus kind of a local mom-and-pop VAR, mm-hmm. the pricing can be pretty dramatic there, sure. just as it would be with a Super Micro server or a Dell yeah. server. Uh, typically, we'll see um, 10 gigabit switches, meaning that there's 48 ports of 10 gig and usually four 40 gig ports. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are all SFP and QSFP based. Mm-hmm. Typically, we see that for about five grand US sure. quantity one. Sure. And again, that's, that's kind of standard MSRP pricing. Yep. So... It can be dramatically cheaper or a little bit more depending on your uh, acquisition method of getting hardware. Right, right. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. If people wanted to find more about Cumulus Networks, more about Cumulus Linux, um, and perhaps get in contact with you and make a sale, where could people go to do that? Yeah, certainly. So it's uh, cumulusnetworks.com is the website, and it has data sheets, information how to sign up for the customer workbench, and then a contact form. You can also reach out to uh, myself. It's Matt, M-A-T-T, at cumulusnetworks.com, and I'd be happy to answer any questions. That was a lot of info. Uh, no, wow. what, what, did you walk wow. away? Are you thinking about maybe deploying that for clients or at least playing with the tech? Oh, yeah, for sure. So let's, uh, if you don't mind, I'll take a minute and go through a couple of things. Sure. First of all, um, one thing he left out in the interview that I thought was so interesting, and he just didn't mention it, so I didn't know if they wanted to go on camera with it or not, but um, I heard him mention it a couple times after that at the booth, so I'm, it's not, it doesn't seem to be private. Um, but the guy that started Cumulus Networks, originally worked for Cisco mm. and then came over to Google to help ah. uh, design and build a large portion of their infrastructure. So the, it's, they know networking. It's not like they're, uh, you know, they're, you know, they're beginners. Um, but w- so walking around uh, LinuxCon, as we saw at, at OSCON, was it, people are interested in how we can make money off the backs of, of the community, not necessarily how do we improve the community, how do we improve Linux, or how do we get Linux adoption. And a lot of people really want to marginalize Linux. They want to say Linux is really only good on the server as far as anything else. Right. You know, embedded and server, that's good. And but it's really an implementation fun. detail. Right. So, and, and this company is doing the exact opposite. They're saying, listen, we're doubling down. We think that Linux is actually good enough. Everyone wants to go towards Cisco and Juniper and HP. And really, we have all the tools we already need, and it's already backed by the community. And mm-hmm. we're already making all of these developments and, and, and forward progression in the server space. So why not take all that information? Why not take all of those trained individuals? And instead of paying a network engineer to manage the switches and a network administrator to manage the servers, I can be one person to manage both or at least right. have, you know, people are cross-trained. So well, and just, was, just being able to take my Linux system administration skills and apply them to manage a switch, it sounds very valuable to me to repurpose that right. skill set. Did you get a chance at their booth to see any of the actual hardware? Like, did it look good? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, well, it's so what it is is it's it's generic. Uh, it's the oh okay. It's the it's it's essentially it's essentially the same piece of equipment that Cisco buys when they put Cisco yeah. iOS on and yeah. then painted a different color and stuff. <laughs> right. right. right, right. Um, but so so and so the the other thing too that I and I, I think that he didn't that as far as it, you know maybe this is a little too technical. But when I had when I was asking him about uh, about implementing it, essentially what I was getting at was I know that their routers I know that their router supports like OSPF and I know they do RIP and RIP v two. What I wanted to know is there's a lot of environments that are stuck on Cisco devices because they're using IGRP. And up until last year, IGRP was a proprietary protocol that only Cisco devices could use. But now in 2013, they actually released it as an open standard. So mm. I was interested in seeing if, because if that's a possibility, if that if if they are planning on implementing it, or if they've ha- have already implemented it, there's a huge market for people that want to jump off of Cisco hardware, mm-hmm. but need to be able to adapt to uh, EIGRP. So. And I didn't quite get that answer. I didn't get the answer I was looking for, and that's okay. And the other thing I was a little disappointed with um, is I was hoping that there would be like some sort of a community edition or a free edition that I could download and put it onto just a regular x86 box um, and just put two network cards yeah, in. Yeah, you can't do that? Pl- no, you can't, unfortunately, oh. no. Oh, yeah, that, um, that would be extremely useful. Well, to play, so the thing is, how does, how does stuff like this get adopted? Stuff like this gets adopted because everyone starts using it or yeah. everyone starts playing with or, it. Or, you know, so a, lot, can, a lot of times you inappropriately put something in production that you probably shouldn't, and then you decide, you know right. what, this is worth it. Let me go ahead and just buy the commercial version or whatever. Exactly. So <laughs> I was, I was kind of hoping that, that he would say something like that, and he didn't. But overall, um, they were one of the, and I don't know if, I, you know, I think it was on the other part of the interview, but all, except for one package, Every other uh, development or every other improvement they make, they contribute back upstream. Right. So the Linux community is benefiting right. from everyone that buys one yeah. of these routers or switches. That's awesome. I mean, it's, that's, it is. That's the, this is one of the things I love about when commercial companies get involved with Linux and they do it the right way. And I think that's what Cumulus is doing here. And, that's, and one of the reasons I wanted to spend some time on this this episode is because I think this is one of the most fascinating areas of potential growth for Linux that we could see in the next few years. And it's something that it's hard for us unless you're deploying this kind of stuff all the time, to really kind of talk about. So that was a great insight from Matt, and I'd be really curious to know if you do end up playing with it, how it goes. Uh, so yeah. Interesting stuff. All right, so uh, we, I, we got two more interviews to play. That was our longest one. I, I, I'm looking for, I haven't watched this all the way through yet because I was saving it for the show. I saw that Noah stopped by and had a chat with Frank from OwnCloud. We've talked to Frank before on the Linux Action Show. This might be Frank's first appearance on Linux Unplugged. I'm really curious to see what he had to say. So back in the media lounge it, at LinuxCon 2014, I ran into Frank, and of course, you guys remember Frank. He's been on both the Linux Action Show and, I believe, Linux Unplugged. How are you doing today, Frank? Not sure. Very good. It's a great event here. It is. It's fantastic, and it's fantastic to, um, as I'm walking around, I'm finding more and more people that are, that are using Linux, um, and of course, one of the big hurdles to that is having services and products that work on Linux, and of course, OwnCloud is right at the front of making that happen. Yeah, I mean, that's, thank you. <laughs> that's our goal, exactly. I mean, our goal is not to provide like a service or software to an open source project that's something esoteric, but something that's really useful for people that can run on their machine and it really brings some value to them. Yeah. So you guys recently came out with the latest uh, version of OwnCloud. So I'm still on 6, but I understand there's a newer version and that there's some really compelling reasons to upgrade. <laughs> that's true, yeah. Yeah, we released OwnCloud 7, the community edition, like um, six weeks ago or something. Mm-hmm. And it's a huge step forward. I mean, in, in several areas. The user interface, the front end was is really 
completely redesigned. It's a it's a lot faster. I mean, you mentioned me before that yeah, the yeah. speed is uh, could be better in six. We actually did it for seven. So okay. seven is really significantly faster. And then we have a lot of exciting new features. We have server to server sharing. So if you have an own cloud server, I have an own cloud server. We can have a shared folder yeah. that I put something in my folder that appears on your folder, okay. even as different machines. And then we support object store backends. We support lots of polishing. Mm -hmm. And the, one of the another big things I want to mention is actually the, the quality and the stability of the software really significantly improved. And we closed, I don't know, l hundreds of bugs. Mm -hmm. It's really, really nicely polished and faster now. One of the things that I have always looked for in um, in a project, and I think OwnCloud is the closest I've ever seen to, to delivering this, is... You know, when I log on to the Internet, one of the first places I head over is to, my, like, my social networking site. And I click on that because it's like this hub that I can get, like, a dashboard view of what's going on in life. I can get yeah. news there. I get updates with my friends. I have their contact info. All the stuff that I want to see, pictures, all that stuff mm -hmm. comes into that hub. And one thing that I think has always been missing from computing in general is a hub for other things. So, for example, like, I need a hub that tells me what tasks I'm doing today and a hub that tells me what my calendar is and a hub that tells mm -hmm. me where my notes are and, and messages. And people send me messages, yeah. and I have been able to. Because the nice thing about OwnCloud is you can almost craft it to do those things. And I'm wondering, is that kind of the same vision that you guys are seeing? Are you looking to essentially replace things like Google services? <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that the goal is to replace Google services because there's a, a lot of them, right? And some of them are, are actually very good. Mm -hmm. So it's, I w if you would say, hey, we want to replace everything, like tomorrow, that's a big task. Yeah. But what we want to do is everything that actually um, uh, contains sensible data for, for you, something that you, you consider private, your, your files, your, what, your, your emails, or your calendar, your, con your notes, something like that. I mean, that's the, that's the mission of own cloud, that yeah. you can host it yourself, that you can protect it. If it moves more into like the social area where you have like a, a news feed of your friends, yeah. and then it's like, I mean, then it makes more sense for centralized services. Yeah. So we don't want to replace Facebook or Twitter or right. something, right? Because it's actually useful to have it in a central server because it's social, right? Right. Um, but the stuff that's actually very important for you, private, has to be protected, encrypted perhaps, that's own cloud, yeah. That's fantastic. Now, I know that OwnCloud, one of the one of the huge advantages is that I can, if the if OwnCloud itself doesn't provide me with uh, functionality, I can go out, find an ad, and put it in. Yeah. And now I've had that that functionality, and I've noticed that over the revisions, it seems like some of those things that were previously add-ons have gotten, maybe not exactly in their current form, but they they get integrated into the actual OwnCloud. Have yeah. Have we seen that from six to seven? Um, yeah, partly. I mean, there are some. Uh, let me think about examples. I mean, uh, the picture gallery, for example. Mm -hmm. It was uh, relatively basic for OwnCloud 3 and 4 and so on. Mm -hmm. And there were like third-party picture galleries with more nicer slideshow features and so on. Um, and now um, the, the, the new um, gallery application that's in OwnCloud 7 actually has all the features. So what you say is, is, is partly true. And the reason for that is obviously because OwnCloud is a fully open, community-driven software. Mm -hmm. So everybody can contribute. And we, we see a lot more contributors. I mean, our numbers are really, really going up. Sure. So a lot more people that put their stuff in, that have their ideas, that submit patches, pull requests. So that, that's the nice thing about open source. So we... Lots more polishing all over the place. 
Now, what you you mentioned that um, you know as 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 uh, as these futures rise, and of course your need for funding is going to rise. One of the ways I think that that could work is if OwnCloud was to succeed in a corporate environment, right? Like you, right up until this point, we're talking about private data. But what happens if a company wanted to mm-hmm. essentially establish their own cloud? I mean, I've actually seen firsthand that work at a couple different places. They've rolled out OwnCloud and it's worked very very well in a corporate mm-hmm. infrastructure. Is that yeah. something that you guys cater to, or is that just a happenstance that happens to work out? Absolutely. I mean, this is the this is the core reason why OwnCloud as an open source project and OwnCloud as a company works so well together mm-hmm. because the requirements are actually very similar. Right. I mean, companies want to protect their data and, pro- and individuals at home want to protect their data right. and want to host it themselves and integrate it with other, customize it and, and extend it and so on. So the general idea is really similar. And because of that, we are actually we are able to found a company around OwnCloud. As you know, we have OwnCloud Inc., a startup, and, and we sell exactly what you ask for, like an enterprise-optimized version of OwnCloud. We provide this right. for sell this to companies, yeah. Perfect. Now, is there anything else you'd like to tell us about OwnCloud, the project, or if, if people are interested in finding out more, is there a place they can go to find more information? Well, there's OwnCloud.org for the community side, OwnCloud.com for the company side. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's actually good that you ask. There's one more thing I want to talk about is if you're really interested in OwnCloud and you want to want to contribute, want to be part of the community, mm-hmm. then um, we have a, the very first OwnCloud developer um, conference coming up in Berlin, actually next week in, in, in Berlin. So you can go to OwnCloud.org slash conf. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have over, already over way over 100 people signed up, and these are not users, right? Mm-hmm. These are the people who want right. to contribute, yeah. developers. Mm-hmm. So if you want to be part of this open community, just come there. It's absolutely free, of course, uh, and um, just work with us on building the next big thing for OwnCloud. Man, I'll tell you what. I am an OwnCloud believer, too, as, as of uh, version 7. Um, uh, no, have you played with it yet? Have, have you have you done any I, own cloud deployments? I know you mentioned you had a six. Are you just experimenting, or is it something you're using all the time? Yeah, so I had uh, we I, I put six to use personally, and then uh, I actually we had a clinic that that came, and, uh-huh. and a lot of what they were asking for was. Um, it seemed like own cloud would fit, and I showed him a demo. It was it was actually it was, it was funny. I was sitting in a meeting room, and I'm like, I, usually I would have a demo set up. I had no idea you guys were looking for this, so I can show you my personal one, and if you like <laughs> yeah. it, and, yeah, yeah, sure. Nice. So it was on the screen for a little bit. And after 15 minutes, the CEO of the hospital said, "Yeah, we're going to go to this." And man, that makes so, so much sense for hospitals or yeah. companies like that. Yeah, really. So, any and company. I st- yeah. And so I got back, you know, I didn't get back to Grand Forks until Friday, and then I had to catch up on work Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. So I haven't really had a chance to, to do a whole lot, but uh, I'm definitely going to upgrade my instance to seven. Um, and of course, Frank, somebody said in the chat room, you know, Frank is a super nice guy and, mm-hmm. and a great guy to talk to and somebody who's really dedicated to his mm-hmm. project. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like both him and Joss a lot. They're both really great guys. Uh, you know, let me tell you how I've done my own cloud instance. And this is this really how I recommend you do it, too. It's amazing. First, go to our sponsor, DigitalOcean.com. And keep in mind, you can use the, the promo code UnpluggedAugust. Keep UnpluggedAugust in the back of your mind while I tell you a little bit about this. Uh, DigitalOcean.com is where I set up my droplet running Ubuntu 14.04. Then I went over to the OwnCloud website. I followed a extremely simple step-by-step guide. It sets up a repo for OwnCloud. So now I'm getting updates to my OwnCloud installation. I've already had one update. It went brilliantly, no problem. And I have a VPS that's on DigitalOcean right now, and all it does is OwnCloud. And it's awesome. I went out and registered a great domain that I love for it that's super funny. I'm going to use it for our production staff. And I switched over. I have a test iOS 8 device. And I'm going to try this on the Sailfish 
OS device that I have too because I noticed it also has support for CarDAV and KelDAV. And now all of the backend syncing infrastructure for my mobile apps is going to my own cloud instance. I'm not syncing off Google anymore. I've moved off Google on my phone and it's amazing. It it really does feel incredible because I haven't lost the functionality. I'm using my DigitalOcean droplet with OwnCloud 7 syncing to my phones. It's amazing. And you can do it too. I have the local sync right here on my uh, in fact there's my own cloud uh, sync client right there I just fired up it's connecting to my uh, digital ocean droplet keeping all of my desktops in sync I love that who needs Dropbox and that uh, that just right there just that is worth five dollars and that's not all I'm using it for so here's a little bit about DigitalOcean. it really is a simple cloud hosting dedicated to really the most intuitive and easy way to spin up a cloud server I'm getting emails from folks that are spinning up servers in under a minute all the time but they say you'll probably get one going in about 55 seconds and here's where it's gold pricing plans start at five dollars five dollars and you get 512 megabytes of ram a 20 gigabyte ssd one cpu and a terabyte of transfer connected to tier one bandwidth digital ocean as data center data centers in new york san francisco singapore amsterdam and a brand new one in london they just turned on ipv6 in another data center they've got an announcement about that on their website but let me tell you about their interface it is so simple so intuitive. The control panel, if you're watching the video version, I'm pulling it up right here. It's really what it looks like. You can use it. And it's not just about how fast you can spin up a server. It's not just about how easy it is to make backups. It's reducing the friction so that when Rekai comes down to me and says, hey, you know, there's something I wanted to test, but I'd really like to have a fresh Linux installation to test it on, and I'd really like it to be publicly accessible. It's not no matter, it's no matter like a, well, I guess I could create a VM, open up a port on the firewall, forward that traffic in, set up DNS, install all the, no. I went over to DigitalOcean, and under a minute, I had a droplet ready to go for him to use to deploy the software he needs. It's so easy to scale up my infrastructure just on demand as I need it, and when we're done with the project, we spin it back down. You need to add capacity for your back end for a little while? Baby got back over at DigitalOcean. Go over there. Use our promo code. Get the $10 credit. If you just need to scale for a launch for a couple of days, go over to DigitalOcean. They even have hourly pricing. Just use that promo code Unplugged August. And here's the best part. If you forgot to use Unplugged August when you checked out earlier, they'll let you go back and apply it again. That's how awesome DigitalOcean is. DigitalOcean.com and use the promo code Unplugged August. If nothing else, go play with some own cloud, own cloud and DigitalOcean, two great things that go together. You know, I was just looking at our subreddit. We have somebody who spun up a droplet in 20 seconds. <laughs> Unbelievable. I believe it, too. Unbelievable. I, that's 20 gotta, seconds. Was that the London data center? That's got to be the, right? I don't know. I've he heard the London. I mean, they're all amazing, specify. right? They're all amazing. But that London data center, it's just such a, a firecracker. It's really awesome. And I, I hope he used Unplugged August, so he got a $10 credit when he did it, too. All right, we got to we got to cover the SUSE interview. So, a uh, great group over at SUSE, and of course, they had a booth at LinuxCon, and uh, they're part of the Linux Foundation, all of that. So they're in tight. So Noah stops by and had a chance to talk with George and Michael. They talked about SUSECon, which is coming up. They talked about servers. They talked about desktop, and all of it in a great chat. We're here continuing coverage of LinuxCon 2014. We're here with George and Michael from the SUSE project. How are you both doing today? Pretty good, thank you. Doing great. Glad to be here. So I want to start uh, with you, Michael. Um, you guys both were kind enough to sit down and, and speak with us, and I really appreciate that, particularly at this conference, as I'm finding it very difficult to to uh, get people to come on camera and talk about their project. And it's good to know that it says something about the openness of the SUSE project that you guys are so willing to come on camera and talk with us, so we appreciate that. Now, I understand there are some uh, s- some big changes, some big things happening with the SUSE project. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, a couple things. You know, we're, we're working hard in a couple different areas. 
uh, OpenStack, of course. We're uh, investing quite a bit there, distributed storage. We've got our, um, our flagship product, SUSE Linux Enterprise Server, coming out later this year. We just released our SUSE Cloud OpenStack distribution based on IceHouse just recently. Uh, we have a live kernel patching technology that's going to come out in conjunction with SLES 12. And we have a Ceph-based storage product coming out early next year. So we're working in all kinds of different areas uh, to bring technologies that people are looking for primarily within an enterprise IT environment. Mm -hmm. Now, do you look, when you say enterprise IT environment, are you looking more at the desktop side or the server side? Primarily the server side. Okay. But we have a desktop as well, of course. Yeah. In fact, um, so one of the other things that I wanted to talk to you about is um, I understand that you have a conference that is uh, that, that you do every year. Yeah, we have what we call SUSECon, and that is our conference for uh, customers and partners. And this year that will be in Orlando, November 17th through 21. Okay, outstanding. Um, now, Michael, I understand that uh, it, it, it's. It, it, am I understanding correctly that you are on the more technical side of the of the SUSE? I'm in the product marketing manager for SUSE Linux Enterprise Server. Okay, so tell me a little bit about what uh, what it is that uh, your position offers and what it is that you do. Yes, I am uh, in charge of the uh, messaging and positioning for the new um, coming upcoming SLES 12, and actually uh, we are going to release the uh, official release of the SUSE Linux Enterprise Server 12 and uh, with other. Um, solutions mm -hmm. uh, later this year and uh, part of one important area we're going to focus is the downtime we are tackling the tackle this problem from um, uh, many uh, levels mm -hmm. for example uh, when we talk about downtime people uh, there's kind of different kinds of downtime mm -hmm. uh, planned downtime and unplanned downtime we're tackling both for example, for, from the hardware side, we are collaborating with different hardware partners to uh, fully exploit the RAS reliability, availability, and serviceability features in the hardware platforms. Uh, you might take a look at the, the background and the, the chameleon sitting on top of the big IBM System Z machine. Actually, we are pretty, we are the most popular Linux distribution in the IBM uh, System Z. We are also introducing, the, uh, we are also including the uh, high availability in the IBM systems there. So uh, no matter what platform like Intel, like IBM uh, customer choose, uh, SUSE Linux Enterprise is their safe choice um, to to build an additional level of uh, availability and reliability into the hardware. And also from, from the service level, um, we are offering uh, solutions and features like uh, high availability and then uh, live kernel patching like uh, Michael just mentioned, the KGraft, um, to build build up the service uh, uptime to to ensure your service is okay, um, like you can easily set up a high availability cluster mm -hmm. or even you can uh, set up the geo-clustering to um, connect your uh, two data centers in different locations so that in case one location goes down, the other location uh, can back up. And also KGraph is a big thing, a big innovation from SUSE, which uh, allows you to do the live kernel patching. Uh, you don't imagine a, a situation where you run a mission-critical workload. You cannot afford to shut it down. Or you, can, you run a, a virtualization host with uh, like 40 or even 50 virtual machines. You cannot even afford the host that goes down. Live kernel patching is a technology for you 
to, to do the kernel patching without shutting down the system. Uh, fantastic uh, technology um, to boost your uh, service uptime. Also, we offer some other like, tools and services uh, like we can allow you to do the full uh, snapshot and rollback for the full system, mm -hmm. uh, including kernel files, mm -hmm. so that um, when you do some kernel patching, uh, lots of uh, complicated inter inter uh, interdependence of the kernel patching, you don't have to shut down. You can, ju you can just uh, snapshot and rollback just in case you did anything wrong by operational mistakes. Yeah, there, there are um, many, many other things coming into the Celestial, mm -hmm. like uh, we have features in cloud, we have features uh, in the management and then interoperability, and more features um, anticipated, uh, stay tuned. Outstanding. Well, we look forward to hearing more about what SUSE is doing and, and, and upcoming things that are happening in SUSE. If people wanted to find more information about SUSE or if there's anything else you guys wanted to mention, uh, where would people go to find that? So you can, of course, go to SUSE.com and find all kinds of information. But I also wanted to mention a couple other things. Uh, I want to mention our community. Open SUSE is our community project that we, that we sponsor and mentor. Uh, not mentor, but we sponsor and, and facilitate. Mm -hmm. And OpenSUSE is a very independent community. OpenSUSE is a great community distribution. In fact, I run OpenSUSE okay. as my production OS. Sure. So I use OpenSUSE for all the work I do at SUSE all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, if you're looking for a Linux community to get involved in, mm -hmm. and you're looking for a community that's really open and welcoming, and uh, looking for contributors, whether it's coding, whether it's packaging, whether it's documentation or anything, OpenSUSE is a great community. So check them out, uh, OpenSUSE.org, uh, if you're looking for a Linux community to engage with. Outstanding. And I, I want to thank you uh, and, and give props to you for using your own dog food, so to speak. You know, in a conference like this, it's, it, it's becoming a very rare thing to see somebody actually running Linux on their computer, which you'd think would be very prolific at a Linux convention. But actually, no, it turns out that's, that's not the case. So, uh, you know, that's, I think that's great. That really says something about how much you guys believe in your own project that you guys are using, you know, essentially the same thing that, you, yeah. that you're selling. And, you know, it's a great thing about the job, right? I love Linux. I've loved mm -hmm. Linux for, you know, 15 years I've been a Linux user. Mm -hmm. Many of those years I had to be a Linux user at home, yeah. and I had my secret Linux box under the desk yeah. at the office. But now Linux is what I do, yeah. and I love it. You know, so I run Linux at home. I run it on the office. I run it on my laptop, and uh, I get to immerse myself in uh, a great community and, and a great operating system. Outstanding. Well, that's the project to go to then, if anyone's looking for something that they can apply both at home and at work, and 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 to to be with a project with where the people that work for it really believe in the uh, in the goals and the the future of Linux. Absolutely. Thank you both so much for taking time to to speak with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. So uh, no coincidence, I'm guessing, Noah, that the uh, SUSE booth was right next to the IBM booth? No? Sorry, I forgot to turn on my microphone. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, no, yeah. Um, so, no, yeah, the, I, I don't know if this came out uh, real clearly in the interview, but, yeah, so essentially SUSE is what's powering that really super cool yeah. glowing bl blue computer. <laughs> right. um, hey, man, it's got blue lights. Yeah, and and SUSE was, uh, was extremely you know proud of the fact that when IBM looked for an enterprise solution, um, they went to SUSE, and IBM is going to be starting uh, doing VPS hosting and, and, and stuff like that, and for that, that's all getting, again, on the back end, powered by, by SUSE Enterprise Linux. And it's, SUSE is, 
they have the right model going, and it's kind of the model I hope to see that Red Hat follow, is they have SUS for the enterprise that you can pay for, and mm-hmm. then OpenSUSE, mm-hmm. but everyone at SUSE is actually using OpenSUSE. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that was the other like thing. Like a little Red Hat CentOS combo there. CentOS on the desktop. Like Fedora. Or Fedora. I, I don't know. Well, I, I feel like Fedora maybe worked Fedora Workstation if that goes well. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's, that's right, because Fedora really isn't what OpenSUSE is in the enterprise world. But, right. you know, right. uh, you know a couple things. This is at the conference in general, but you know, it speaks to, again, Seuss's dedication uh, to this. So first off, you know, a huge thank you to the Linux Foundation for having us there, for, you know, being so accommodating. They, you know, a lot of the things, a lot of the interviews and the streaming was only possible um, because they had to, to twist some arms to make that happen. So I, I really appreciate that. Um, but, uh, you know, you walk around. There was one of the guys at the conference that I walked into, and actually that was my favorite uh, interview, was the guy from Hestexa, um, Adolfo. Uh, oh, yeah, all yeah. The interv- he yeah. was actually he was one of my favorite guys, and I can't remember if it was him or somebody that overheard the interview and started talking to me afterwards, but he asked me a question, and I didn't have an answer for him then, but I do now. And his question was, why is it I'm railing on everyone for purchasing MacBooks, but not all of the people that are running, that, that are purchasing Windows computer? Aren't they both proprietary uh, hardware with proprietary software coming installed? And again, I couldn't answer that then, but as I thought about it the rest of the conference, when, when HP, Lenovo, Dell, Acer, and Gateway, when they're making computers, they're, they're packaging Windows because they believe that's what's going to help them sell the machines. And if tomorrow users decide that they want Linux to be that operating system, those manufacturers would be happy to ship with it. Mm. But Apple has a vested interest mm. in not only selling the hardware, but getting people into their software and cloud infrastructure. And so... The, and that's why I th- – so like you look at OpenSUSE as a perfect example. They bought ThinkPads, but they're not running Windows on them. And if tomorrow it became – if tomorrow IBM, this partnership grows or whatever, and all of a sudden they decide they're going to branch out and Lenovo is going to partner with them, they're going to – I can see uh, Lenovo shipping SUSE on ThinkPads. I sure. can't see Apple no. shipping Never. any version of Never. Linux on, on a Never. Mac. So that, that was my Never. answer to that. Good point. But, uh, Good point, though. Yeah. Well, anyway, so so Seuss and Estexa uh, and 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 Cloudera were you know were and obviously and of course Red Hat um, were the ones that really stood out at the conference because they were shamelessly running Linux on everything I saw. I mean, every piece of uh, of hardware that they had was proudly running Linux. So on would the you say the was your impression of the uh, usage of Linux similar to our takeaway from OSCON? It's pretty much all no. MacBooks. <laughs> It was, it was better actually. So 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 uh, um, aside from uh, aside from our aside from our uh, that one discussion that we had during the stream, um, most of the presenters, most of the people that were there, um, it w- I'd say it was probably a fifty fifty split between wow. PC. Uh, well, hold on, but, but between PC and Mac, oh. and then of the fifty percent oh. split of PC, a certain uh, 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 you know a, a sliver of them were running Linux. Okay, um, mm-hmm. but there was a lot more. There, I didn't see. I don't think I saw a single Windows box at OSCON. I saw tons right. of Windows boxes yeah. at, at mm-hmm. LinuxCon. Maybe more of the workforce. Work- yeah, yeah, that's probably it. Workforce um, proximity you, uh, you have, to Silicon Valley. Okay. Well, so what yeah. you well, so Bingo. what you have yeah. is OSCON. You have a lot of a lot of marketing people. Like for instance, Rackspace will only let you talk to Rackspace if you talk to one of their right. marketing or PR people, yeah. and that's who was manning the booth there. Whereas yeah. here, it's a lot of the people that are you know in the you know in the in the trenches. So, so it's the speak. engineers. Is that why yeah, right. is that why you were experiencing resistance about going on camera? Do you think? Oh yeah, huge. Yeah, in fact, so yeah, there were tons. There were so suffice to say, there are a lot of really cool and encouraging things happening at big companies that you've heard of that are really, really, really pushing to support Linux 
they're just not willing to go on camera and talk about it. Because they don't want to say something wrong. I don't know what it is. It, the, the thing is, it's one of those things where, where there, there, were, there was a specific example where I was like, this is a huge vote for Linux. This is a huge vote, not only for Linux, but the Linux desktop. And the company would not go on camera and, and acknowledge that. And I'm like, I don't understand how that could possibly that's a big, go wrong. That's a big name that kind of uh, would carry a lot of weight in the yeah. community, right? Sure, sure. And, it would, and it would, it's one of those things that it would single-handedly persuade me to purchase their product no, having that piece of information, if I were to walk into Best Buy and I was going to buy a computer, I would say the fact that the company is making this decision is it, 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 it's hands down. It tells me that this hardware is likely going to work with Linux because they care about Linux and Linux specifically on the desktop. So I was I was super disappointed and I badgered them to death to get me to talk to me. But no perhaps go. they feel strong armed by Microsoft. Yeah, that that could be. Yeah, that yeah. could be. Yeah. Red Hat did eventually come on camera and talk about how they're essentially going to come out with a uh, a Linux desktop um, that's geared for you know for the enterprise desktop. So it's not just a server that we're using on a, on a on a workstation, but it's actually meant for people to sit down and work at and get work done on. And they're going to do that. That's essentially how they're going to position CentOS. That's exciting. Yeah, uh, it was. I, when you go to these things, Noah, does it make you discouraged about desktop Linux? Sometimes, yeah. In fact, OSCON, I was I was extremely discouraged. In fact, yeah, I, so the whole I. flight back, I had a hard, I had I I can honestly say I lost sleep over it. And it's one of those things that um, you I, I look at the world that's evolving, and I'm like, man, we are like, the Microsoft battle was bad because they were so prolific. But what we had going for us was at the end of the day, we had a better product. And what scares me about Mac is I still believe we have a better product than what than what Apple offers. What I don't know is if other people will ever accept that or if anyone yeah. cares about the advantages yeah, that we offer. That's my thing about it, yeah, is I'm not sure about that last part. Um, and I, I, uh, I, I look at this, too, as kind of like um, one of these things where we go into these events and it's kind of – it's hard not to come away with a little bit of localization bias. Like we might go to Ohio Fest and find it a completely different, a different scenario. I think we, the Linux fests are drastically different from the conventions, and I mean drastically different. I think if you show – so the email – and I, I asked Q5 to forward it to me, and he never did get it to me. But there's an email that the guy sent out for self, and the email said projectors will be pr- provided for presentations and will have, uh, VGA, will have VGA cables. Uh, HDMI is available uh, you know, if you tell, let us know ahead of time. If you have a freedom-hating laptop that requires a special <laughs> adapter, you are on your own to provide that adapter and Excellent. use it, and no troubleshooting will be provided to you. And I was, so that's the mentality that you get at, 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 at Linux Fest, and I think that's what we're going to see right. at Ohio. Yeah. And it, it, frankly, that's where I have more fun yeah. because that's where I fit in better. Well, here's what you're. Here's what we're kind of getting to. This is, uh, is going to be our last main topic for the day. But uh, it's. I feel like I'm working on a bigger soapbox that I want to get onto about this. But I'm still trying to put it all together. Maybe you guys can help me coagulate it like some uh, dirty old grease. Uh, Matt Asse. Uh, Matt Asse uh, wrote a piece for Tech Republic saying, "Hey, can you please shut up about the Linux desktop? Just shut up. Stop talking about it. All right." <laughs> and he says, uh, "Yeah, I know Linus was at LinuxCon, and I know Linus said he still wants the desktop, but I don't." The briefest glance at MarketShare data suggests that I'm not alone either. While hundreds of millions of people want Linux powering their smartphones and millions of businesses are content to let Linux run their servers, virtually no one wants it running on their laptops and desktops. Uh, He says Apple's been successful in part because it's reduced the complexity of personal computing, but even Apple has largely failed to overcome the PC's clunky interaction with human experiences. Could Linux do any better? Probably not. Linux, developed historically by and for geeks, may be the least likely candidate to improve the consumer experience. 
Uh, I love how he acknowledges how it's all over smartphones and devices like that, but then yeah. says it can't be done. Uh, he says, hey. so let's move on, just like the rest of the Linux world. Or let's just, everybody move on, like the rest of the world. No one outside geeky events like LinuxCon pines for the desktop anymore. We should be content that they're pining for something even better. The Android smartphone, which makes Linux desktop relevant for the next 20 years, even if it wasn't relevant for the last 20. So the 1990s called. Um, they, wa- they, they want him back. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, oh God, where do I begin poking holes in this? Well, it's like it's just so full of misinformation. And also, like, hello, did you know there's countries outside the United States, like know, India yeah, and right? China, that are seeing incredible adoption of Linux right now? Yeah. But, but that doesn't India count because it's not in his living room. That's what matters, you know. Yeah, How about true. Nevada? Jeez. Yeah, I, I've, I find this so – I've been finding more and uh, more of this, like, oh, everybody just give up already. The Mac is one. The Windows, Windows is, Windows is, this is the new narrative. Windows is fading. The Mac is escalating. Linux never won. And I, I think it's so, when I hear people say this, it sounds so self-centered. It's like they're, it's impossible for them to consider that the year of the Linux desktop is not like this grand year where everything, all of a sudden, everything switches. It's more like, well, this is the year it was good enough for me to switch over. That might be 2016. For one person, it might have been twenty, or it might be two thousand and two for another person, right? I mean, who knows, right? Your the Linux desktop is whatever year you switch over. Yeah, yeah. And well, I think it import- Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, well, no. I was gonna. I was gonna say that one of the you know, and one of the other things that, that one of the things that is truly encouraging because I've started. I used to be. I used to be afraid of asking this because I didn't want to offend people and I didn't want to step on toes. But I asked basically everyone I interviewed. I'm like, do you use Linux on the desktop? And if so, why or why not? Um, and one of the things that was really encouraging is you find a lot of people that are leave, that leave Mac or Windows to come to Linux. I haven't talked to a whole lot of people. You know, obviously, this is a bad segment to bring that up in, after this guy wrote in at the beginning of the show. But there's not a ton of people that are jumping off of Linux to go to Mac, at least not that I've talked to. Not anymore. I mean, I think there was a big exodus originally. Uh, VR Mac, I want to give you a chance. You think it comes down to education? Right, not only education in the classrooms where they're taught to use Windows because it's the thing to have, but because, you know, as we frequently bring up in this show and our other shows, we really don't have one big company to really shout out our name. Uh, you know, our our best chances, you know, may be canonical, but they, they don't care about you know, uh, really, really mass marketing because well, their big thing is, uh, you know, phones now. I think this is the other I think this is the other logical fallacy that we fall into and why we see gloom and doom. Uh, because essentially the line of thought that you just iterated perfectly uh, is uh, this kind of this kind of we take the current state of the world and we project it ten years down the road and we say well this is never going to work. But if you would, if you would have gone back five years ago, you wouldn't have seen the success of Chromebooks. The idea sounds stupid. The idea of a web browser powered laptop is stupid. The price is stupid. The hardware sucks, and yet they're incredibly successful. And now, after years of iteration, they're going to be respectable devices with actual use case scenarios. And now it's a huge growth for Linux. We never would have called that. Like there, we have no idea what's coming. We have no idea who's going to take Linux and package it up and make it presentable. It doesn't have to be the current form. I hope the current form exists for people like us forever i want to be able to just run my own cobbled together version of the general technology platform that's what i think linux is uh and i i hope that that continues i think it always will i don't think that'll be the number one desktop i don't think that's likely i don't think that's even maybe necessary like what we want to happen i think we want a product to do it i think we want something with support well even os 10 is oh, the number absolutely one i mean totally. uh, uh oh you're you're totally right i mean the the thing is, it's it's really just the desktop, though. You know, it's the uh, the lack of of advertisement. Really, I, I'm not saying that. I'm not by any means trying to predict the future at all. 
but you know you can't you can't blame that it's you know by geek by right. geeks for geeks because the reason that it exists in the other environments yeah. is because there are people like us who care about having a better mm-hmm. system. You know, if I'm going to build a server, I know that GNU plus Linux is better. Mm-hmm. So of course I'm going to put you know maybe Red Hat or whatever on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for the desktop, it's just not marketed. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's right. impossible to market really. I mean, because mm-hmm. it's like okay, yeah, here's a, here's a platform that you can do whatever the hell you want with it. It can totally adapt to whatever your needs are, almost except for video editing. But you know, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's <laughs> difficult to come across well. in terms of uh, it's difficult to you know capture in a headline or you know some sort of snappy advertising copy. But you know, the best marketing it gets is word of mouth from people like me and you. Daredevilin, Daredevilin proposes we don't need to market at all. Go ahead, Daredevilin. Yeah, the reason I say this is because. Linux has been been successful in so many places, and it's just natural progression. Yes, companies that want to take tackle like Canonical, they they should uh, go and market their distribution. But the consumption of Linux on the desktop doesn't need, in my perspective, market as it needed. First of all, people already know uh, how to use basic computing, which is uh, was something big on the past and required a lot of marketing mm. and to get mm-hmm. attention. Just that was entry, and the bar- other, barrier entry. Yeah, exactly. And the other part is, just look, if it works for your government, how hard is for people to tackle that it works for them? I mean, once they start using these government tools, and the governments are switching because of the multiple reasons we know, it's just a natural pro- progression. Well, and I, government th- used it, I used it. I look at it this way too, like uh, you know, we eventually it's going to be so damn good that it would almost be crazy for somebody not to make it into a product. Like once once System D is like no longer a new thing and it's well integrated and fully functional and everything everything that it's going to gobble up is gobbled. It's been nommed. Once Wayland is ironed out and we have excellent drivers from the vendors and we don't have these nightmare problems anymore, and a lot of our underlying technologies that we use for the applications like QT and GTK3 have really gotten to this excellent maturity point, which they pretty much are now, like it would be almost like financially and fiscally irresponsible for some company to not come along and turn that into some sort of amazing product because there's so much incredible underlying technology there that's already made for them, right? It's like having a car that's pre-built that all you have to do is slap paint on and sell it for $10,000. Exactly. So it, I, I, I'm very optimistic because it's a good platform. And we, you know, one of the reasons I played that crazy long interview with the Cumulus Network guys is because like, that just is one more area where running Linux will become the norm. And mm-hmm. it, when you have more things like on mobile and on networking and on servers and cloud and Chromebooks <laughs> and mobile devices and all of these yeah. things, it would almost be crazy not to do it, not to have it as the underlying technology for desktops, too, because it'll just be the underlying uh, general purpose operating system for technology. Well, it's one of those things where you can literally mold it to be whatever you make it. Yep. It's exciting. That's, that's, you, that's you the, the whole thing, on, though. Go ahead. Oh, well, that's what, that's what I'm saying, though. I mean, you know, because it can become whatever it is you want it to be. Um, and the, the biggest, for me, for me, the biggest thing, though, I've been using Linux since Mandrake. And, <laughs> you know, I'm not kidding. And that was when I had to get my mom to write a check to have 78 CDs sent to me through the mail. <laughs> so, like, so when I came back to Linux, you know, f- six or seven years ago, I was like, oh, my God, it's, it's, yes. it's what we always wanted right, it to be. Right, right, right. You know? And, so, and yes. I think it'll only get better and better yes. and better and better and better. That is the other when thing. You- like, when you, when, when you, you know, uh, when I look back at old Linux action shows and I look at what we were talking about, I go, oh, Wow. We have really come yeah. a long ways. Yeah. For exactly. Yeah. Well, and I think you hit the nail on the head on Sunday when you said um, Linux has another 30 or 40 years into it 
Mac OS doesn't have that. Windows doesn't have that. When you think about that, if you think of those, you know, especially in the current iteration, being around for that long, I don't know. Yeah. That was Greg Crow Hartman that said that, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, well, he, said, right, he, said, he said 30 to 50 years. Yeah, yeah. 30 to 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. There you go. Well, uh, so for me, the breakdown comes down to this. I mean, and I think everybody loses sight of this, at least everyone I've ever talked to. First of all, you know, we, we're trying to mark, we got a bunch of engineers trying to market stuff. That's half our problem right there. Um, on top of it, it comes down to availability and support. Google's the closest thing thus far to have really nailed that is that they've got the uh, support and they've got the whole availability thing down because you can go to Amazon and you can buy these things. Um, until that happens, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to continue to be the AM way of operating systems. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It really will be. And that's and, sad. Well, I mean, no, I think truth, it's, a, it's a current stage of it. I think it's, it's, it's Google demonstrating that there is a market uh, applicability, yeah. here, applicability right. here that other companies will eventually start to rip off. That and, would be awesome. Awesome. And when yeah. they do that, they're going to want to differentiate from the Chromebook, and they'll probably differentiate yep. by adding more features and more capabilities. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And that's it. Once you get a taste, it's very difficult to go back. You know, all we need, all we really need is for a company like HP to take a bunch of their money and a bunch of their time and a bunch of their resources and throw it at these $200 Windows uh, netbooks that aren't going to do very well, and then they'll bail on that and say, you know what, let's try the same approach, but let's try a more functional Linux environment. Maybe let's work with the Mozilla Foundation and have Firefox launch full screen or something. We'll have our own version of it, and it'll be like this full Linux operating system because you know maybe they want to have a little more enterprise capability. It is. It sounds crazy at first, but it only takes a couple of things to fall into place, and all of a sudden HP's doing that, to Noah's that point earlier. Idea. And imagine what happens when Red Hat and now when Red Hat comes out and says, "Okay, now we've perfected it. Now we have a desktop that's more stable than Windows. Mm-hmm. It runs mm-hmm. a browser, yes, which is basically exactly. more and more businesses are moving towards web-based software every day. And now HP comes out and says, "Okay, we'll ship that for for two hundred bucks." Yeah. And then uh, and now now you have the makings, and a company sits down at the budget. And they go, "Well, we could buy this computer with Windows Seven. It'll be outdated in, in in two years or three years or or whatever. We buy this, you know, we buy this computer from HP, and essentially all it really needs to run." Is, is a web browser and it's immune from viruses, immune from uh, you know spyware and malware, and yep. hopefully Matt doesn't bite my head off for saying that. Yeah, you know, I actually oh, have, no. <laughs> I actually have no, a personal anecdote about something like that. You know, I worked for a company where I did basically all of my work. Actually, I worked for a couple of companies like this. All of my work inside a web browser. Mm. I did all of my work inside a web browser, and we got a virus once. <laughs> and I was just, oh. remember using Windows Seven. We got a virus, and I'm like. This whole thing could have been prevented yeah. if we were just running Linux. Don't even need anything else. Exactly. The and not only that, but it would run faster. We wouldn't have to worry about our server crashing as often because that happened quite a bit. It was just it was a nightmare as far yeah. as the implementation That's a good went. Point. And not only that, but our IT costs were skyrocketed because of not only licenses, but because the the, the support people yeah. just were flaking off doing their own thing yeah. sometimes. And yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then you end up with a revolving door of IT support, which yeah. is also adds to the problem. It was awful. We had somebody there at least once a day for two weeks. <laughs> I'm not All right. kidding. Wow. So uh, that's probably where we'll wrap it up. We'll do the retrospective in the post show, so if you're on the live stream, stick around. We'll look back at uh, Linux from a few years back, but we should probably run. That'll bring us to the end of today's show, because there's a lot of show, a lot of interviews, a lot of stuff to cover. We've got a really special guest lined up for Sunday if all works out, and if not, I've got a great segment planned as a backup. So either way, we're going to have a rocking show on Sunday, Matt, all right? So have a great rest all of your right. week. I'll see you on Sunday. You see you then. All right, and Eric, thanks for joining us in studio today, buddy. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. It was yeah. fun, and it's, it's good to, uh, to uh, throw things back and forth. And huge, huge, huge thank you to Noah for all of his hard work oh, yeah. out Big at LinuxCon. I know he had to do- double down and hustle like a mo, and so I really appreciate him going out there and putting everything on hold and all of that. No, you it's did great an awesome coverage. job. 
All right, everyone. Amazing job. Thank you so much for tuning this week's episode of Linux Unplugged. If we don't see you on Tuesday, maybe we'll catch you for last on Sunday. Goodbye, everybody. Before I ran Ubuntu, I used uh, Debian on my Pentium 500 megahertz Dell laptop, and I went out to Palo Alto to do some work in an, in an office, and I'd never worked in America before, and I'm sat in a little cubicle uh, it, on my on my own, and this guy came over, the office guy came over and said, look, before you can plug your laptop into the network, I need you to tell mm. me <laughs> what, what antivirus software you use yep, on your I've laptop. Yep, I've had that too. And I, uh-huh. and I said, well... Uh, I run Linux. And he went, oh, fine. And he yeah. just gave me a <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Now, yeah. that was great. That was a great experience. But then everyone in the cubicles around me ran Windows. And that happened to be the week. I think it was something like Slammer or some Windows virus was doing the rounds. Code and red. everyone around me, their PC had been completely taken out. I was able wow. to carry on working. <laughs> Everyone around me was wiped out. They all went to play golf. So there are downsides to this as well. That's true. <laughs> you know, I had to sit there and carry on working while everyone else just pissed off. You know, it's funny. So I, there was a uh, there was a bug in uh, Windows 2000 uh, before even like any of the major service packs had come out in you know, IIS, so- and uh, where if you had a certain type of query to an IIS server. It would crash the uh, IIS process, and then it would get in this loop where it would start to restart, eat up all the CPU, and essentially the box would stop fi- uh, file sharing, stop print sharing, and all this kind of stuff. And it took the network guy a little while because that was his box, and I had I had set up a Samba server. And so guess what? They decided, move everything over to the Samba server. Oh, That's Chris's job. So <laughs> Windows box. So then Chris had all the work to do. I had to do a big migration overnight because the Linux box oh, was boy. working, and I was like, oh, go figure.